Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Dayson Digest. I'm your host for the day, Ray Perez, one of the second year infectious disease fellows here working with Dayson. And I have with us one of our fearless leaders, Libby Dodds. Ashley, how are you doing this morning, Libby? Hey, Ray. Almost third year fellow, don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Just uh, one more week to finish out the year. Exciting times. We got some fresh blood coming in. You may be hearing on the podcast helping us and uh, enjoying this summer as much as we can. Today, we have a really interesting article to discuss. I think should at least have uh, prompt some good discussion uh, between the two of us and some things to think about as we consider ICU patients. And that is probiotic-associated central venous catheter bloodstream infections lead to increased mortality in the ICU. This is by Scott Mayer and colleagues in the Society for Critical Care Medicine Journal uh, just this past June. Thanks to uh, one of our colleagues, Rebecca Mooring, for pointing this article out to us. Yeah, I think this was interesting. You know, it's a little out of our wheelhouse to go to the critical care literature, but it's it's important to see what our colleagues are having. And this may actually be something that you're having brought to you on rounds, you know, when you're going to do stewardship rounds in the ICU or uh, talking to those pulmonary critical care guys. Absolutely. I think it's a good point. Sometimes we can get a little siloed in our own literature, and there's a lot of people in so many different fields looking at many questions that are relevant to our stewardship practices. And so making sure we keep cast a wide net is an important lesson. Um, so to set the stage a little bit here and talk a little bit about probiotics, I you know I try to do a little bit of background reading. I didn't realize just how popular probiotics are out there. Um, so this is uh, most recent data I could find was an NIH survey from 2012, so a little bit older data. But at that point, an estimated four million U.S. adults had used probiotics within 30 days of their survey, and they show that this number had quadrupled between 2007 and 2012. I bet it's quadrupled again, if not more than that. They're so popular. I mean, we were talking a little bit in preparation for this, you know, you can easily name several brand name ones that are on the TV all the time. You know, they're advertised so commonly. They're, they're pretty popular. So really large impact, something that a lot of people are using out there. You know, data are really mixed on these products. I think the biggest things you see those advertisements purporting is, potential benefits for antibiotic-associated diarrhea or helping uh, manage C. diff or irritable bowel syndrome sort of symptoms. And, in you know, I feel like in general, the approach I've had is like, well, you know, I think not a lot of efficacy data out there that's particularly compelling, but if I don't, you know, not something I consider to be particularly harmful. And so I guess when I was advising my primary care patients back in residency, it was always like, you know, if it's something you want to try and you feel like it helps you, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Um, but, you know, the, on the other hand, there are some actual more serious concerns to think out there. There are a number of case reports that have been published on systemic infections with unusual bacteria that are present in these probiotic preparations. Um, and in particular, uh, concern has been raised about our ICU patients and those with central venous catheters in particular. Uh, and Libby, you were saying you... Uh, remember there being some uh, controversy about this uh, with uh, one product in particular. Yeah, there was, you know, probably more than 10 years ago now, a product, Floristore, that came out and actually had in the information that came with the product, uh, a warning about not using it in patients with central venous catheters. And I think something that's going to be very relevant to this article is they also warned against using it near patients with central venous catheters, which is interesting. And that was a product that came in a capsule form. Um, so something to think about. It's a little prelude for what we're going to talk about in a bit. Yeah. So I think 
you know, with this article, I was really thinking about, well, gosh, if we're worried about C. diff and antibiotic-associated diarrhea, on the one hand, our ICU patients are probably the ones who have the highest potential benefit from, from getting something like that and preventing those. Um, but at the same time, there are some of our sickest patients in the hospital, so potentially also at really high risk. And so this study tried to dive a little bit deeper into quantifying that risk almost from an epidemiological approach and looking at different risk factors. So what did they do? This was a multi-center retrospective cohort study that used data from the HCA healthcare system, which is a large healthcare system, has facilities in 19 states, and they uh, looked at patients across all of their uh, acute care centers. The cohort of patients was taken from records from October 1st, 2015 to October 1st, 2020. Their inclusion criteria, so they focused on adults aged 21 to 89. These had to be patients who had a central venous catheter in place while they were in the ICU. Um, their kind of intervention cohort was drawn of patients who received probiotics while they were in the ICU. So these were actually administered um, by the hospital while they were there. Um, and they excluded pregnant females, um, what they defined as other at-risk populations, uh, which they didn't really give a full explanation of, so a little unclear, like what degree of immune suppression they were counting there, perhaps. Um, and then if they had patients who had no blood cultures and file to, co to correlate with, obviously they were unable to include those. Um, so I mentioned that that intervention group was patients who had received probiotics while the ICU, but uh, an interesting point is they took that kind of control group they're comparing for entirely from patients from that last year, from 2020. Um, so it wasn't exactly a direct comparison they were making over that same time period, which I thought was an interesting choice. I agree, Ray. And, and of course, I mean, obviously it's 2020, so it's, it's not a normal year to compare <laughs> to. There was a lot going on then. And so, I, you know, I don't know what to think about that. I, I feel like it probably was added in, honestly, because they did find some inter interesting trends. I think they decided they needed this control group and that's probably what they were able to get access to. I happen to know that some of the HCA hospitals, we work a little bit with their stewardship program. They've had some changes in their healthcare uh, record. Mm. And I wonder if it wasn't lack of available data going backwards. That is just my guess. Whenever you see something like that, it's a little bit suspicious. This is clearly like, well, we have to do this. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll get what we can. <laughs> Research is hard and sometimes the practicalities need to take the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what they did is they looked um, at the formulations of probiotic products that the patients receive while they're in ICU and they compared them to any positive blood cultures. And so they defined what they called a probiotic associated uh, bloodstream infection as a bloodstream infection that happened in a patient that was caused by an organism present in that probiotic product they received. So really trying to correlate, is this looking at what did we give this patient and was the bloodstream infection they had an organism present in exactly what that patient got? So really trying to make sure we have that biologic plausibility of um, that being the source of the infection. They um, identified their primary outcome as the rate of these probiotic associated central line associated bloodstream infections. And then they did a number of different subgroup analyses to look at the bloodstream infection rate across different probiotic organisms in terms of what was involved in that formulation, the type of formulation, it was a capsule or a powder. Um, they looked at the different types of central lines, patient comorbidities, and even TPN co-administration. So they're really trying to capture a broad swath of different factors that potentially could be contributing to risk of developing one of these. And so what did they find? So um, pretty big study overall. So they had over 56,000 patients included in the primary analysis. 
23,000 who had been who had received probiotics while they're in, in the ICU and 33,000 who had not. Um, and you're looking at their table one, pretty representative of the US population in terms of racial breakdown and other comorbidity breakdown. Um, in the control group, they found that uh, patients who were not receiving probiotics had zero probiotic associated bloodstream infections. Though I have to admit, it's unclear how they would based on the way they defined a <laughs> probiotic associated bloodstream infection. Um, but I think they mean to say that, you know, they didn't see any of those, frankly, unusual organisms that are present in these formulations uh, causing bloodstream infections in patients who had not received it. And then in the intervention group, so patients who were had central lines in the ICU and were actively receiving probiotics, they had 86 probiotic-associated, central line-associated bloodstream infections, which um, is only, you know, a third of a percent, but still, I mean, I don't think I have personally ever seen one, you know, I've seen maybe one like lactobacillus bacterium before, but to think that, you know, you're, you'd be having that many a year going on, I actually found that pretty surprising. Yeah, it's, it certainly is a big number. And it's something that when we talk so much, you know, with our DICON colleagues about the cost of every central line associated bloodstream infection, that's a, that's a huge burden to the health system to have 86 of them across their study period, um, which is interesting, you know, and then, um, and I think you're gonna talk about this, but they did calculate their number needed to harm. And it yeah. seems like a big number. It's almost 300, right? 270. But I, I don't know. I feel like something that people are doing that they feel like they're not causing any harm. And, and it's, and it's pretty devastating when you get one of these infections, I'll say going back this is back into the dark ages, but I still remember a case of lactobacillus endocarditis that we had in a fairly young, healthy bodybuilder uh, when I was just coming out of training and how, you know, that, that was really devastating for him. He didn't have a central line to start, um, but he ended up with this bacteremia and endocarditis and it was so hard to treat. And, and it really, you know, altered the course of his life. He ended up with multiple cardiac surgeries and, you know, just devastating. And to that point, you know, they really looked at, hey, what's the effect of how these patients do if they develop one of these? And they said their patients who had developed a probiotic-associated central line uh, bloodstream infection had higher mortality than those receiving probiotics who did not, with an odds ratio of 2.23. So their risk of dying doubled if they had one of these infections. And so just like what you're saying, it's quite devastating if one of these develops. Right. And I, you know, and I think people tend to almost dismiss these a little bit. I mean, not dismiss them, but you think, oh, they're not, these aren't the serious organisms we see all the time, but this mortality rate is the same as they saw from other central line associated bloodstream infections. You know, this is, this is just as bad as an MRSA infection or a pseudomonas infection that you get. So it really makes you stop and think about what you're doing. And we certainly wouldn't come into our ICUs and say, hey, I've got this great Staph aureus powder, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> do you want to give it a try? Uh, so I, you know, it, it, that hit home that that mortality was equal to that of other causes of classy. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, definitely just that top number alone, you know, making me think about, is this a product that we want in our ICUs? Um, getting into, you know, like I said, they looked at a lot of different factors, getting into some of the other ones. You know, they did try to look at what components of these products potentially are associated with the highest risk. And the, the one that seemed to uh, boil up to the forefront was Saccharomyces boulardii at the highest rate among the different organisms being present when these infections occurred. Um, unfortunately, with the table they show here, they really just tell us what was present overall in the supplement, not necessarily what correlated to what was actually positive in the culture. So a little bit less of that direct biologic plausibility of showing us, hey, this is what was a positive culture and this was its present in the product. But um, interesting that you bring up Floristor and Saccharomyces being 
the the central product the component that they're trying to sell with that product in particular yeah interesting and probably explains why some of the findings led to that having that warning in their prescribing information but also interesting to me and this is somewhat of an aside you know working on formulary management we always tried to have a pretty consistent approach to probiotics if we were going to allow them at all in our patients in hospitals and i was stunned by across the health system the great variability in the products that they allowed in uh, which is something to really keep in mind you know you want to think about what product it is and, and i think probably you want to have a consistent supplier and product presented so that you know what you're looking for i mean this was kind of hard I, i'm impressed that they found all of these because they really had to dig into what was in those various products those patients received it was impressive work yeah very interesting that a health system would include so many different things on their formulary and I, what was driving some of those decisions is interesting to think about. It almost makes me wonder if it isn't um, a case where they were allowing patients to supply their own preferred formulation. Just mm -hmm. when you see that much variability, I always get suspicious, but then you also start to wonder, you know, it brings up those questions, you know, what is the, there, there are now some regulations from the FDA on how to have standardization and product content, et cetera, for various probiotics, but we know that they're always doing surveys and finding many that don't follow it. So, um, just a little plug that if probiotic therapy is something you are considering in your patients to try to find a, a reliable source of it uh, that meets the FDA guidance on how to best prepare it. In terms of some of their other subgroup analyses that I thought were sort of interesting and worth discussing, uh, you know, another finding they had is that they saw powder formulations had twice the rate of infection compared to non-powder infections. You know, these were pretty small numbers at this point. I think it's a little tough to draw too many conclusions, but I'm just curious to hear your or your opinion, Libby. Do you do you buy this? Do you think this is just a, a fluke of too many subgroup analyses and finding one that seems significant, or do you think there might be something there? I, well, I mean, I guess in theory, and even that's probably why, again, in that floor store warning, it says to not even use it near patients with central lines because it can aerosolize and it can be a source. But let's face it, in an ICU, you and I both know that when we send a capsule up to the floor, it's not necessarily being administered as a capsule. So I kind of question this analysis. So sure, it was you know, supplied as a powder packet or a capsule, but I bet a lot of those capsules got opened. So I think it's really hard to tease this out. Um, and I wouldn't take comfort in having a capsule formulation, thinking that that's protective for you, just knowing what's going to happen in our ICUs. I think they did have an interesting discussion there, sort of, do we think this is primarily coming from gut translocation inside out versus how many of these are actually an outside in infection that could be happening if you have live product in a in a powdered form, whether initially from a capsule or not, and getting on the exterior of a line and making its way in that way. I honestly hadn't considered uh, lactobacillus or, or saccharomyces as something that would burrow its way in in that way. I know we'll have to uh, tell our DICON study teams to start culturing for lactobacillus, right? <laughs> Along with their other tests that they're doing for C. diff, et cetera, when they're checking those patient rooms. Now, one other area they tried to look at was comparing different types of central lines. They technically saw the highest uh, rate of infections in ports, though at that point we were dealing with only two infections. So I think it was hard to draw any significant conclusions from particular lines being at higher risk than others it was just from the small numbers problem here yeah I agree the very small numbers um interesting um the, I just always find it interesting when femoral lines work their way in I'm like oh still um, but yeah the uh small numbers when you, you break it down but still I mean all lines were associated right all types so no no line was safe <laughs> any other of their uh smaller subgroup analyses that stood out to you Libby 
you know, I don't think so in particular. It was interesting and it did cause some questions. We've already brought it up. You know, we had some some methodology questions. Honestly, I think it was, you know, pragmatic research. It's how they had to get it done and how they found their comparison group using the targeted group during COVID. But I, I do wonder about that. I mean, we know how much different our precautions were during that time. And so I, it does make me think a little bit about that. And I also wonder, you know, was there a change in probiotic prescribing patterns also during that time? Because we saw just about everything else see a change in prescribing patterns during that time. So it, it does raise some questions, but I don't think it takes away from the fact that, you know, when patients did get one of these infections, they died just as often as regular collapses. You can't hide that, you know, with a control group. And uh, just really, I, I think, sobering to think about that. Like this is this is something that we are doing to these patients with the best of intentions, but we are directly causing harm by it. And so just to the nice thing about this study, when we think about where we'll use this, you know, I don't think I'm going to go in and, and super convince, you know, uh, you know, this is high level evidence to do or not do something. But when we do get those questions, I'll certainly refer to this study. Um, it's it's nice to have that mortality data now, because we always knew there were case reports, there were case series of these infections, but people always sort of questioned us, you know, well, how often does that really happen? And is that just a rare thing that was a fluke? And, and I think now we, we have enough of these to say, no, uh, that this is true. It happens. Um, relative, you know, again, less than 1% of the time, but when that 1% happens, it's, it's pretty devastating. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit unfortunate that we didn't, this study didn't have the ability to really look at robustly at the other side of the coin, you know, that what are we seeing any of that potential benefit of reducing C. diff, you know, they did, uh, they, they were able to give a kind of gross overall rate that in the patients receiving probiotics, the C. diff the incidence of C. diff was actually higher than in the control group, though they mentioned that since the way they did their temporal analysis, that likely was confounded by they, these patients were perceived at high risk and thus had been already on the probiotics to begin with. Um, so hard to make too much there, but gosh, you know, many studies from from the American College of Gastroenterology, IDSHA, none of them are recommending these products because there really is not strong evidence of their benefit for C. diff or antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And meanwhile, the evidence for harm does seem to just continue to be mounting. I agree. And, and I appreciate, you know, clinicians are, they're looking for that product that they can use to try to prevent C. diff, um, especially in patients who have a history of it or are perceived high risk for other factors that are well-defined. But, you know, th this is just not the answer. You know, similar, we, we also worry about using treatments for C. diff to prevent in these patients. And so I appreciate them trying to save those antimicrobials. It'll be interesting. You know, we're entering a new era, as we've been talking about, with new agents to help prevent recurrent C. diff. Um, and what their role may or may not be will also be interesting, uh, you know, going forward, because they also target the microbiome. So all this microbiome manipulation stuff, I think, is going to um, maybe help answer this question. But at the end of the day, maybe this is job security for us stewards, but you know, the answer is still getting them off the antibiotics they don't need. Um, it just seems to be the best. What did you think, Ray? What was your like most poignant point from the article? I think that was my big takeaway as well is that, you know, it just, the risk that, you know, the, the benefit, the potential benefit is just not worth the risk, certainly in this population, certainly not in ICU patients, definitely not with a line, but I think in my brain, I, that would make me worried enough about anyone in an ICU who's that sick um, to be putting them at risk of these products. And it it really has started me thinking on, you know, 
where do I draw that line? You know, someone who's just generally healthy out in the community is young, probably okay. But then, you know, now you've scared me with your story of your young <laughs> bodybuilder <laughs> that it, uh, it still can't happen. And so it really does have me wondering, you know, where do I draw that line? Do I start advising even other patients to, hey, I, I would seriously think about avoiding that product, you know, uh, and in comparison to having just done a lot of reading on Rebiota and Vast <laughs> and these other new products that we are using effectively for preventing recurrency dips. So. Yeah, you know, it, we we often get those questions, you know, is it better in the healthy ambulatory population to just have them try to eat diversely, you know, try to use other sources that maintain your microbiome diversity. I, you know, that is probably enough in most people. Um, but don't forget, you know, we're very focused in this conversation today on probiotics, specifically around C. diff prevention um, and antibiotic associated diarrhea. But there are a lot of other reasons that people are using these. And so I think it's important for everyone to be aware. And the biggest advice I have is, you know, really get yourself familiar with that guidance on what the products are and on the consistent sources. And there's, there are some good resources that you can find that go through a few products. You know, we kind of, I tend to have in my pocket, like the top five that I, that I know something about. And I'm like, oh, I know this one. I know this one. And I know this one. I at least can say, if you're going to do it, these seem to be reliable and consistent. And they never show up in those um, FDA reports when they go survey them that they don't have the true product. So uh, I think that's probably the best way to approach it because people are going to use them for lots of reasons, not just um, around our C diff, C diff, even though it's near and dear to our heart. <laughs> Great. And then I guess, you know, kind of along those lines of choosing your population, one other thing I thought was very interesting in this study is that they did try to compare the rates of these probiotic associated uh, infections in immunosuppressed and solid organ transplant populations compared to their general population. And they saw the same rate, which I thought was very interesting. I, you know, I would have expected that to be higher in that group. This again may have just been a small numbers problem, but um, yeah. they, they, in their discussion, they got into this whole thing about whether probiotics were safe in immunosuppressed populations or not. And I wasn't sure how to, how to feel about that. I was curious what your take was. Yeah, you know, the old transplant ID pharmacist in me <laughs> wanted to know more about those patients. Um, I was like, are these a bunch of kidney transplant recipients or are these like lung heart transplant recipients? Because <laughs> those don't all play the, <laughs> the same way around immunosuppression. You know, or were they distant past? You know, are they the the chronic players who were down to minimal immunosuppression. Because again, there's that whole group that they defined as overly immunosuppressed that they didn't even look at for this. So I, who's in that bucket? We don't know. So I don't think we, I, my personal take was we don't know enough about these guys to say exactly how I feel about that. But it, it was an interesting but bizarre finding unanticipated. No, they did not talk about their oncology patients, which is clearly a group we want to absolutely stay away from. Um, that I, I think they would get it from inside out and outside in all at once <laughs> in that population uh, between their mucositis and, and all their lines. So we need to definitely avoid in that population. But it was interesting. You know, I, I really appreciate uh, Rebecca Mooring bringing this to us because this is a question we get a lot from our sites. And so we hope that this has been helpful to put, you know, uh, just a, a solid piece of data about the harms Um if you can get past some of the, you know, some of the questions, especially about that control group and others, but, but it's still, there's very important findings to be had in this article. And I think that is a great place for us to wrap up. Thank you, Libby, for the great conversation. And to uh, everyone out there, you know, if you have questions about, hey, should we be making a different formula decision about probiotics that we have? How should we think about trying to do some education on this important topic in our ICUs? Please uh, reach out to your JSON liaison and we're happy to help you think through all of that.
Thank you, Ray, so much. Thanks, Ken. Take care, guys, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.